Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Foundation and the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a guest today. Uh, He's on the board of the Finding Genius Foundation. Wonderful guy, uh, Brendan Coventry. He's an associate professor of surgery. Uh, He's in Adelaide in South Australia. I've had him on a couple of times. He has a wide range of interests and experience. Today, we're going to talk about um, evolutionary biology of our immune system, how that, how that interplay looks at looks and works. So Brendan, thank you for coming back. My pleasure, Richard. Yeah. Well, tell me, so in what context did you even get interested in our immune systems and how does evolutionary biology play in? Well, we started looking uh, at cancer and the, the way the immune system works with cancer and particularly how the immune system can remove cancer. So it's a very powerful instrument that the body can use to combat infection, which is clearly where most of us see and understand the immune system's power. But when when cancer uh, is discussed, uh, it's it's less clear how it's working. In fact, so much so that many people, until until you know a decade or a decade and a half ago, really did not believe that the immune system really had anything to do with cancer. It was very commonplace for people to tell us immunologists and and surgeons that were interested in how the immune system ridded the body of cancer and the ways that it could be manipulated to try and achieve that. We, We were sort of told that, you know, no, the immune system doesn't work. The immune system really has no role in cancer treatment and, and cancer removal. Um, so, but surprisingly, fast forward to today, you can see that there are many treatments that are now being based around the immune uh, system and that are being used to treat cancer uh, quite successfully, quite successfully. Uh, about 30% of melanomas, for example, can be removed. Advanced melanoma can be removed with 
boosting the immune system using some of these uh, immunotherapies. We are ourselves looking at vaccines to try and improve the response to cancer. Just like a vaccine can protect against infection, you can use a vaccine to treat infections and you can use a vaccine to treat cancer. Uh, So we are learning a lot about this. So that's really what sparked the interest in where the immune system really came from. It's a largely invisible system. Um, We can't see it. We can't really feel it. We can't even measure it terribly well. But when it doesn't work, it's obvious that it's uh, terribly important in combating cancer. For example, in intensive care patients that we see after surgery sometimes, and um, they can be very profoundly sick from infection. Uh, Infection takes over and then the immune system really has uh, has uh, a very important role in trying to reverse all of that. It doesn't matter how many antibiotics you throw at the patient, if the immune system is not effective, uh, they won't work. Uh, so the immune system is absolutely integral in, in trying to combat infection. How does the evolutionary biology component come in? Well, we, we started looking at, at a couple of things. A couple of things were very obvious. We, we know that the bacterial load in humans is something like 10 to the 14 bacteria so so 10 by 10 by 10 14 times and this is uh, an incredible number of bacteria the, it turns out the mammalian cells is less it, it's somewhere around 10 to the 13 10 to the 12 so um we we actually are more bacteria than we are human uh, in terms of the numbers of cells but we don't seem to succumb to infection we remain in a state of what we call health. And it's only when this balance gets tipped and the immune system can't really control the bacteria or the bacteria get into spaces of the body that they're not normally present, that the problem starts. So we thought, well, you know, in an evolutionary sense, how did this all occur? Well, how did it, how did it sort of come about that the immune system developed? What was it? Did it happen in in great leaps or did it happen in in tiny little incremental steps? Uh, So we started tracing back to where the immune system was first picked up in evolution. Um, So life on Earth, when you look at cellular life, really began about three to four billion years ago. So before that, there wasn't much in the way of life and there certainly wasn't cellular life as we know it. So then what happened? Uh, what, what sort of cells existed at that point? Well, we know that that there were monocellular types of, of life that really didn't exist in the multicellular way that we know animals and humans and, and insects exist. Uh, these were just single cells that could, could replicate. And in fact, there's, there's groups, uh, Paul Davies' group and, and uh, Charlie Lineweaver's group, here in Australia, have been looking at the evolutionary roots of cancer, for example. So they started looking at at what genes were switched off and switched on, what processes were affected in cancer. And they found out that some of these harked right back to deep evolutionary roots in the way that bacteria, for example, grew in sheets. So bacteria were able to replicate and reproduce. And uh, some of the genes there uh, were the same ones that seem to be 
defective in cancer. So this sort of raised some serious questions about, about how cancer really developed, whether it wasn't just an evolutionary mistake that occurred, where it was harking back to older systems that used to work uh, back in a very early time, and that these cells became uncontrollable because they grew in the same way that, say, bacteria grow in sheets, for example. So uh, we started we started looking at, at all of the evidence and, and pulling this out and trying to sort of work out where, for example, rejection of tissue occurred. Okay. I mean, yeah, this seems a, a little bit general. So what, what specific are you working on now? You're working on rejection of tissues or rejection of implants or... What specifically, and how does this interplay the microbiome and uh, you know the immune system? What yeah, what are you yeah. working on clinically or research wise that ties these together? Some of this is um, so. So our our work has really been looking at at trying to trace back to where some of the evolutionary roots of of growth began, and the evolutionary roots of the immune system began, and then tie that with the way uh, cancer. Uh, is occurring and how it can be controlled by the immune system. So, for example, about 800 million years ago, the uh, marine sponges, snails, slugs, worms of different types developed the power to, to reject their own tissues. So if you can transplant tissue, so you know, simple experiments were done where, where um, some of these uh, animals that that hark right back to to that period uh, in time, tissues could be transplanted onto the worm, for example, uh, or uh, onto the sponge, and they would be accepted or rejected depending on whether uh, immune system in the organism was able to detect um, whether the tissue was the same or different. Uh, so from a different sponge, it would reject. From the same sponge, it would accept. And and this is, of course, is a very similar phenomenon to what we see with tissue transplantation in humans now and animals. But when you look at cancers, for example, you can't transplant cancer terribly effectively between tissues, between uh, individuals. So someone with a cancer, if you took those cancer cells and then tried to inject them into someone else, they would reject them. The only way you can get them to accept them properly is to immunosuppress them. So we knew straight away that the immune system was really, really important and that it was integral to how the cancer was able to, to grow and to spread uh, and to survive uh, inside the body. So the cancer was behaving like some sort of prehistoric being almost using prehistoric genes that were switched back on again that were present in the cell but but switched off or, or damped in some way and they were being switched back on again in order to try and um, uh, improve the uh, power of this cancer to grow in the individual so there were all these threads going through uh, of of how the immune system could be working and before we continue I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, 
including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Are you looking at cancer as a separate organism with its own homeostatic drive? Because um, it is, I mean, it could be likened to, I mean, I've heard there's a lot of communication going on between primary and metastatic sites, um, yes. taking out primaries, driving metastasis. So, you know, with exosomes and stuff, there seems to be a lot of communication and just postulating that once a cancer gets to a certain quote unquote size, it's now its own organism. It attracts its own localized microbiome, may act as one or it may not, but it communicates again with other sites. What, what's your thinking there? And if so, what's well, the implication for this interaction yeah, with immunity? Exactly. And and those concepts are, are still quite probable and valid. Um, they're, they're not really sorted out yet. Uh, we do know that, there, and there's a group in Canada that's working on on looking at site-specific microbiomes, and they have come up with a variety of vaccines that they can use that more effective, the different bacteria of different, different types are more effective in certain organs than in other organs. So if the bacteria is normally present in that, those organs and a cancer develops in those organs, then those types of bacteria can be heat killed and then used for vaccination to try and improve the immune response against the cancer. So um, yes, it may well be site-specific. There's some evidence that it is. The microbiome is becoming increasingly important. We know that that when uh, we use some of the immunotherapies, that if antibiotics are given early before the immunotherapy, that this can render the immunotherapy less effective than if the antibiotics are given after the immunotherapy or during the immunotherapy. So if a few doses of of, uh, immunotherapy are are able to be given before the antibiotic, then well and good, and that that can actually improve the response or at least not make the response worse. So the microbiome is emerging as incredibly important, but we don't know exactly yet how we can manipulate it and we don't know the the precise ways that the microbiome can influence the immune system in the cancer patient in order to improve immunotherapy. We're getting getting hints on it, and there's certainly some emerging evidence in animal studies, and there's now some studies going on in humans and, and a few results from those uh, that would indicate that um, the microbiome is vitally important. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Again, what does that tell you that antibiotics work better if given at a certain time and if changing the order of surgery first, then this, then that, or chemo first, then this, then you know, antibiotics, et cetera? What, what does that tell you that there seems to be a, a more advantageous time to give the antibiotics? Yeah, I think we're still trying to work out exactly what it's telling us, but to be able to precisely use it. But what it is saying is that the influence of the antibiotic on the bacterial populations that are present in the patient, say in the gut, is is particularly important in shaping the way the immune response reacts against the cancer. So some some things that we thought were were just uh, completely unrelated maybe and, and completely separate are turning out to be highly linked and 
very, very important in determining responses. So uh, this is this is what really sparked us going back into into looking at at how the immune system developed over time. It, the immune system has been like a constant development developing process that's gone on developing the different types of cells because very early immune systems contained uh, essentially chemicals. So in plants, the immune system is essentially chemical. Um, it doesn't really have cells that move around the plant uh, like the cells move around the body in, say, a modern animal or a mammal um, where we have highly developed immune systems with completely different cell types and uh, we have a, an adaptive immune system that can, uh, T cells and B cells that can uh, move around the body and fight infection in different ways, producing antibodies, for B cells, and the T cells are actually uh, moving and, and attaching and attacking and, and working in, in uh, unison. So groups of T cells can, can attack and those that this immune system that we've got ourselves and that we study ourselves, which we really only understand a little part of uh, currently, is a highly complex system that has developed over billions of years and has has ultimately shaped itself into what we have today. So we, we are sort of now digging back, trying to get literature that... Um, that helps explain at the various stages how the immune system has has uh, developed and shaped itself to to get to where we are today, if you like. So, what I mean, what particular questions are you working on answering? What are you conducting any research yourself, or is this is this more musings that you're gonna you're just watching to see what other people are doing, or like what's what's your particular role in this understanding? Our role really stems from uh, the use of, of uh, cancer vaccines. So we uh, we are trying to shape the immune system, and we're trying to uh, develop um, uh, reactivity to antigens, which have been uh, the immune system has become damped to. So cancers can grow in a in a human. And they can uh, gradually uh, uh, propagate, and then, uh, in some cases, spread uh, and break off, and and spread and metastasize to other places. Now, our question is: is what's allowing that to happen, and how come we can vaccinate in some individuals? We can give them repeated doses, small doses of vaccine. And we can uh, we can actually shape the immune system and teach the immune system to recognise the cancer, and then the can- the uh, immune system can remove the cancer completely from the body, so that there's not any evidence over even a, a you know fifteen or twenty year period where we've been studying these patients, um, it can remove all cancer. So so this is pretty powerful and. In some cases, it seems to be able to shape the immune system. It seems to be able to show the immune system the cancer is there. And why can't it do this anyway? Why, why does the immune system let the cancer grow? Is there a, a mechanism by which the cancer switches the immune system off, damps it down, creates ignorance by the immune system? 
and and then how how come it is that we can actually perturb this so that uh, the immune system now does see the cancer and can remove the cancer completely. Is there any indication that um, cancer is recruiting? I know that in tumors, I guess a substantial number of T cells or other kinds of, you know, immune cells will end up lodged in a tumor and somehow sequestered there. Um, Are they ever repurposed? Does cancer ever form its own immune system that battles with ours? Or does it only seem to just suppress ours? I, I think there's there's no real evidence that I know that the immune system, that the cancer actually generates its own immune system. I think what it does is modifies immune cells that are brought in and attracted in. There, there was there's a number of examples that I noticed many years ago during my PhD. We, we noticed that there were um, small follicles of cells developing a little like in a in a lymph node that were developing in a cancer so so it was uh, it was only notable in a in a in a few tumors that we could find where the immune system actually formed these dense lymphoid aggregates and it could form almost like it was it looked like it was trying to form a lymph node but inside the tumor and and this was so this this is really interesting the question you ask is really interesting because it's is it possible that the the cancer is sort of overtaking and forming its own immune system and then there's division going on and it's sort of recreating its own immune system? Uh, and the answer is maybe because of observations like this, that, that you can see these, um, these follicle-like structures developing within the tumour. But it's, it seems to be, most of the evidence seems to be pointing towards the cancer modulating the immune system and so that the cells that get called in get switched off. The, the cells that get called in get switched off. And uh, uh, what happens is the uh, immune system is uh, downregulated so that the cells no longer become wait, wait. You is, take them out of the tumour. Is the immune system downregulated systemically or can anyone even tell? Is the complement system, is the immune system, is all that stuff, is it a local phenomena or is it systemic? And how could you test that if so? Well, it's both because we we know that the in very advanced cancer the immune system is terribly downregulated. Uh, it it seems to be a body wide phenomenon. But in the early stages, the immune system seems to be modulated just locally. So the rest of it seems to be working. Has anyone um, looked to correlate? So if someone has a primary tumor, but you know, let's say they have a I don't even know if glioblastoma would just complicate it, but let's say someone has a cancer that's substantial size and it looks like it's been there a long time, but it appears to be primary only. And you look at their immune system and its degree of compromise versus someone that has multiple metastatic sites, perhaps because of the metastatic sites, that's why it appears or turns into a systemic problem of the immune system later on. So you're thinking of like a volume effect. The immune system yeah. is affected by multiple metastases and, and it's more effectively downregulated by multiple metastases. Um, I would think so because then, again, I'm, I'm assuming there's coordination between the primary and the metastatic sites. And if you have metastatic sites in two or three or four locations, they're getting localized information, you know, again, from extracellular vesicles and all kinds of hormone signaling and everything. And if each site and each you know is responsible for at least locally suppressing the immune system 
then the coordination of all them, maybe the aggregate is what causes a systemic downregulation of the immune system. Yeah, and it's an interesting thought. I don't think there's a lot of evidence for it, though, because the what we've noticed with the immunotherapies in particular, so the anti-PD-1, anti-CTLA-4 immunotherapy, uh, and interleukin-2 as well, is that some metastases diminish, whereas other ones can grow and, uh, and persist, so that there seems to be fundamental differences between metastases. And, and certainly... There's work by uh, Swanton and others that have shown that there's marked heterogeneity between metastases uh, in the same individual for the same tumour or allegedly the same tumour. In fact, they they appear to be almost different tumours. And How how would you characterise the heterogeneity amongst sites in the same person versus within a given site? Because it seems like there's heterogeneity in both. So what's the difference in it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a good question too, because uh, the heterogeneity is present, as you point out, in both. Uh, the heterogeneity is more marked in different metastases, and I think this is because different metastases are fundamentally genetically different. In other words, clones develop that genetically more different between metastases than within metastases. But some of those clones have developed from the primary. And all of them have arisen from them. So, uh, yeah, you know, look, it's still a black box in that respect. Um, well, Brendan, can't you solve all this right now? I certainly wish I could. Uh, and, and many people that wish that, uh, that the people working in these areas could, uh, because it would make a big difference, I think. So, we, so we're just sort of piecing this together. But my point in, in this discussion is really that there's deep roots that exist in tumours that that hark right back to to the beginning of, of the immune system and the beginning of life on earth. And that these, and we, we're gradually unpicking a lot of these and that is is helping to lead to to an improvement in, in how we understand immunotherapy. Do you have a system where you're keeping tabs on the efforts of multiple researchers or is it just completely overwhelming? And, you know, do most researchers just simply have their head down working on their stuff. And then if something pops up and gets enough attention, they'll look at it. Like how does anyone with, with all this information, how does anyone keep tabs on what's going on? Well, you're absolutely right. And it's absolutely stochastic. You know, what's happening is things are bouncing off other things. You happen to find things uh, serendipitously quite often. You're searching for one thing and you find another or or add to your information. But yeah, you're, you're quite right. There's no, there's no systematic way that, this information is being compiled currently. Maybe there's a, an artificial intelligence way that it could be done uh, to, to sort of piece this information together. It, at the moment, it's um, a lot of work, as you say, people with their heads down, going, going at their own work, generating their own findings. And conferences are often good ways to have a look at what other people are doing. But not everything gets presented at conferences either. The literature is expansive at the moment, and it's making it harder, not easier, to actually obtain information and to try and cross-link that information. So, you know, I mean, things like your podcast setup is is a is a very good way to try and sort of create a, attention to some of this other information that's out there, and to try and sort of cross-fertilize it across different groups that might not otherwise communicate or even look at each yeah. other's work. 
Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I looked in PubMed a while back and I saw there was like 4.3 million papers on cancer. And I know that's that's not even nearly all of them. And Probably. I just see that there's just so much being looked at and worked on that, you know, I guess pun intended, it's metastasized into this like monster. And how does anyone get a handle really? Like if you're going to do something in cancer, even the literature of you, I mean, I would think it would be just, I, I don't know how it even could be done because there's so much stuff there, you know? Yeah, be overwhelming. You know, they reckon the half-life of expansion of scientific knowledge is something like, or it was seven years, and it's down to sort of four years. So in other words, there's twice as much knowledge as there was four years ago. So so this this is the case in point with exactly what you're talking about. How, how one keeps up, how one keeps abreast of all the different, more risk of confusing each other than, than actually uh, missing information than actually making good utilisation of that information and, and making each other aware of it. Yeah, and I think funding funding is very important here. Funding should be driving people together, but it's in fact having the opposite effect of driving people apart. You know, so people protect their area more. They they don't they want to seek refunding, um, so they're less willing to share a lot of information and so on. You know, it, it's paradoxical, really. It's exactly the opposite of what we need. So, like I asked you a bunch of things, and you said you don't know if there's much or any evidence for that. But is anyone even asking the kind of questions that I'm asking, or is everyone kind of again head down? They're going along these established lines with established dogma. Do you see any? I mean, or is it is it coming from you, for instance? Like, are there any avant-garde, different ways of looking at cancer and its interaction with the body that, again, that's coming to you from all your work? Or that you're seeing out there? Any insights? Yeah, well, look, I think that what you say is right, that a lot of people are um, putting their head down, concentrating on what they're doing by necessity, and they are that's what you've got to do to get the funding and to keep the funding and, and developing expertise in various areas. So almost ignoring what other people are doing in order to concentrate on what, what one's doing in oneself. Um, so that's true. Um, but in terms of, of the way we're looking at things, immunotherapy is probably what happens in the body all the time over the period of evolution. In other words, the immune system has been constantly adapting to cancers and infections. So great slabs of, of DNA uh, from the infections that have lived with us for many hundreds of millions of years are being incorporated into our own DNA, for example, into animal DNA um, with infections there. So, so we have uh, we we are actually acquiring parts of micro microbial DNA, HIV, uh, herpes, uh, tuberculosis virus, infections we've lived with long periods of time. We we uh, they're they're being incorporated into the genome, the human genome, and. Uh, this is altering the reactivity to to those infections and to other other infections. As far as cancer goes, the cancers have a, produce a range of antigens, and those antigens are constantly stimulating the immune system. In some cases, turning it on and getting rid of the cancer, and in some cases, they appear to be turning it off. In other words, causing tolerance, and that allows yeah. the person to live with their cancer. Uh, which is exactly what we don't want. We want we want the cancer to be acted on by the immune system and at least at least held at bay 
uh, stability, but at best to be removed uh, altogether. Right. And we, we think this occurs in a large majority of cases, but we never see them. It never comes to clinical awareness. It's only when it can't be handled that it comes to clinical awareness. Do you have any insights on to, uh, you know, when someone like, like now I know they're sequencing tumors. I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing they're just sequencing primary. I don't even know if they bother if someone has metastatic lesions. What else could be done to characterize someone's cancer so that a more uh, specific and focused treatment could be given, you know, a personalized medicine approach, not just based on genetics, but other other factors? Like, what would that look like in your estimation? Now, there's nothing wrong with broad questions. There are a couple of groups that are looking at the immune systems inside the individual metastases, inside the primary and and trying to make sense out of it. The, the patterns that are emerging sort of about as heterogeneous as the tumours. So the, it, it appears that each is behaving almost in its own immune way uh, so that the uh, primary has a particular immune response going on. The secondaries and multiple secondaries have different immune responses going on so that they're they're behaving almost as autonomous uh, entities, which which is fascinating because this harks back to this evolutionary uh, process that seems to be going on, that the tumours evolve as they grow and as they collect genetic abnormalities and then start to sort of move toward down the, the say, one genetic abnormality can can aid growth. So, so the tumour grows faster and... Mm better because of that abnormality which expands and then the immune system is different in that tumor because of the response that's occurred with that particular genetic abnormality so so i I think this is what makes it so complex and this is probably why the immunotherapies don't generally work uniformly they can uh, but they they often affect some metastases more than they affect others. So they're quite able to cope with certain genetic uh, variants but uh, and certain antigens that are produced by the tumour, uh, but less effective with others. So that, that, that there's this mixed response that occurs where you seem to be sort of winning mostly, but not completely. Okay. I don't know. What holds the most promise for you going forward for uh, cancer treatment? You think it's going to be like a vaccine type thing? Is it going to be yeah. a better yes. understanding of the immune function? Like, what's your uh, your guess? Well, I think both. But the vaccine vaccines have have, have developed. Uh, they've become unpopular simply because no one has really believed, and it's largely because of the evidence that's um, accumulated uh, to uh, to show that that vaccines are, are sort of not very responsive are not very uh, able to generate regression of tumours. But in certain cases, they can. And it's these certain cases that I think are so vitally important. They show that it can be done. Um, you know, um, you, you need many, many cases to sh- demonstrate that that something doesn't work, but you only need one case to show that it can work, you know. and And this is the... Uh, this is the interesting thing that certain vaccines in certain circumstances can create um, really effective responses. Now, you know, I mean, there's nothing more spectacular than removing all tumour in a patient with advanced cancer. 
it, it is totally spectacular. Uh, so uh, just the fact that this can be can occur really should be sparking a lot more interest and a lot more research with drug companies. Um, the, the companies are sort of um, hitching on to the easy stuff, but they should be really hitching on to some of the difficult stuff because that's where a lot of the answers and a lot of commercial reality is going to come from too. Uh, if they can crack that nut, it would be really something, um, you know, in, in terms of trying to advance cancer therapy uh, and, and you know, open up a whole range of, uh, of, of different approaches too. You know, that's where we really should be focusing. I, I, think, I think what we're taking is, uh, what we're going for is a lot of the low-hanging fruit, you know, trying to generate antibodies that boost immune systems and things. That's, that's good. That seems to be working. But it's only working in about 30% of cases. So what about the other 70%? What are we going to do there? Um, well, you know, I think we really should be going back to the drawing board and having a look at vaccines again. We should be really trying to work out how the immune system works on its own and, and try to modulate that. Uh, at the moment, we seem to be sort of playing around the edges instead of, you know, really trying to understand the, the fundamentals of how the immune system works. You know, this evolutionary process goes on in every tumour. It modulates the tumour a bit more. Sometimes it's successful. It works, gets rid of the tumour or part of the tumour. Most of the time it does not work and the tumour persists and keeps growing. And that's where the problem is. But we do know that that there are ways using vaccines that you can modulate the tumours and you can actually get rid of them altogether. So this this is the important point. And uh, it's where we should be, I believe, focusing, you know, a lot more attention. We, we are uh, trying to do that ourselves, uh, but we need... We need a lot more people to be working with us and in that vein to um, to make it successful. One more question here. Has anyone done the following? So uh, take a bunch of mice, induce cancer in them, uh, let it metastasize, and then half of the mice you resect, you know, you remove surgically the primary, watch what happens. The other half of the mice, you try to resect only the metastatic sites or one of them or all of them, watch what happens. Would they see a, a difference, you think, in the outcome? You know, if you remove the primary, is that like the boss tumor that instructs the other ones and the other ones then get, uh, you know, they go crazy and metastasize more or vice versa? You know, if you get rid of one or all of the met sites, um, would the primary just kind of start again or would it just go quiet? Has anyone done that? Yeah, um, uh, it's been done clinically. And uh, for it's an incomplete response that occurs for kidney cancer, for example. If you take the primary out, you can get regression of the metastases. The similar thing can occur with some melanomas too, but they're probably the only two tumors where it seems to be highly or, or more effective at least. The others don't seem doesn't seem to make any difference. So, so yes, it's been done, and yes, there's some response, but but chiefly in in uh, renal and uh, melanoma. Oh, but what was the difference observed? If you take out the primary versus uh, one or more med sites, so if you if you take out in kidney cancer, if you take out the primary, you can get regression of the secondaries. So that's probably where it's been most spectacularly demonstrated, uh, and that's in humans. So it, it is possible, but only for certain tumors. And and, and th these are interesting phenomena 
Uh, I'm not aware of any ongoing research looking at that. There may be some going on, but um, I'm not aware of any. But it's uh, it was a phenomenon noticed quite some years ago. But it, you know, you're probably right. It should be all revisited again. We do know that that you can resect uh, tumors in animals and only partially resect them, leaving some tumor behind, and actually remove the residual tumor. That that in some ways it's more effective if you leave some tumor behind, and we think that's a vaccination effect, which is very bizarre, but um, uh, but very interesting. You know, so there's there's a lot of these observations, as you were pointing out to, you know, that the there's a lot of observations that have been made and and it's it's been very, very problematic trying to put these all together to make sense out of them all. People are sort of moving off in, in all sorts of different directions rather than perhaps what's what's needed in a way, bringing a lot of this together. OK, well, very good. Brendan, um, where can people find uh, more information about you and your work? Where can they go? Well, they can go through Adelaide Uni and uh, my email, uh, Adelaide Uni University, is um, uh, Brendan, B-R-E-N-D-O-N dot Coventry, C-O-V-E-N-T-R-Y at adelaide.edu.au. And you can get that via Google as well. But I'm happy to answer any questions too. Okay. Well, very good, Brendan. Thank you for coming back. It's always great to talk to you and, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for all your good work. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.